Section 19 of The Elements of Botany. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Corinne LePage. The Elements of Botany by Asa Gray. Section 16 Vegetable Life and Work, Parts 5 to 6. 5 plant food and assimilation only plants are capable of originating organizable matter or the materials which compose the structure of vegetables and animals the essential and peculiar work of plants is to take up portions of earth and air water belonging to both upon which animals cannot live at all and to convert them into something organizable that is into something that under life may be built up into vegetable and animal structures all the food of animals is produced by plants animals live upon vegetables directly or at second hand the carnivorous upon the herbivorous and vegetables live upon earth and air immediately or at second hand the food of plants then primarily is earth and air this is evident enough from the way in which they live Many plants will flourish in pure sand or powdered chalk, or on the bare face of a rock or wall, watered merely with rain, and almost any plant may be made to grow from the seed in moist sand and increase its weight many times, even if it will not come to perfection. Many naturally live suspended from branches of trees high in the air, and nourished by it alone, never having any connection with the soil and some which naturally grow on the ground like the live forever of the gardens when pulled up by the roots and hung in the air will often flourish the whole summer long it is true that fast-growing plants or those which produce much vegetable matter in one season especially in such concentrated form as to be useful as food for man or the higher animals will come to maturity only in an enriched soil but what is a rich soil one which contains decomposing vegetable matter or some decomposing animal matter that is in either case some decomposing organic matter formerly produced by plants aided by this grain bearing and other important vegetables will grow more rapidly and vigorously and make a greater amount of nourishing matter than they could if left to do the whole work at once from the beginning so that in these cases also all the organic or organizable matter was made by plants and made out of earth and air for the larger and most essential part was air and water two kinds of material are taken in and used by plants of which the first although more or less essential to the perfect plant growth are in a certain sense subsidiary if not accidental vis-a-vis -vis earthy constituents those which are left in the form of ashes when a leaf or stick of wood is burned in the open air. These consist of some potash or soda in a marine plant, some silex, the same as flint, and a little lime, alumine, or magnesia, iron or manganese, sulfur, phosphorus, etc. Some or all of these in variable and usually minute proportions. They are such materials as happen to be dissolved in small quantity in the water taken up by the roots, and when that is consumed by the plant, or flies off pure as it largely does by exhalation, the earthy matter is left behind in the cells, 
just as it is left encrusting the sides of a tea kettle in which much hard water has been boiled naturally therefore there is more earthy matter i e more ashes in the leaves than in any other part sometimes as much as seven per cent when the wood contains only two per cent because it is through the leaves that most of the water escapes from the plant some of this earthy matter encrusts the cell walls some goes to form crystals or raphides which abound in many plants some enters into certain special vegetable products and some appears to be necessary into the well-being of higher orders of plants although forming no necessary part of the proper vegetable structure the essential constituents of the organic fabric are those which are dissipated into air and vapor in complete burning they make up from eighty-eight to ninety-nine per cent of the leaf or stem and essentially the whole both of the cellulose of the walls and the protoplasm of the contents burning gives these materials of the plant's structure back to the air mainly in the same condition in which the plant took them the same condition which is reached more slowly in natural decay the chemical elements of the cell walls or cellulose as also of starch sugar and all that class of organizable cell material are carbon hydrogen and oxygen the same with nitrogen are the constituents of protoplasm or the truly vital part of vegetation these chemical elements out of which organic matters are composed are supplied to the plant by water carbonic acid and some combinations of nitrogen water far more largely than anything else is imbibed by the roots also more or less by the foliage in the form of vapor water consists of oxygen and hydrogen and cellulose or plant wall starch sugar etc however different in their qualities agree in containing these two elements in the same relative proportions as in water carbonic acid gas carbon dioxide is one of the components of the atmosphere a small one ordinarily only about one twenty-five hundredth of its bulk sufficient for the supply of vegetation but not enough to be injurious to animals as it would be if accumulated every current or breeze of air brings to the leaves expanded in it a succession of fresh atoms of carbonic acid which it absorbs through its multitudinous breathing pores this gas is also taken up by water so it is brought to the ground by rain and it is absorbed by the roots of the plants either as dissolved in the water they imbibe or in the form of gas in the interstices of the soil manured ground that is soil containing decomposing vegetable or animal matters is constantly giving out this gas into the interstices of the soil whence the roots of the growing crop absorb it carbonic acid thus supplied primarily from the air is the source of the carbon which forms much the largest part of the substance of every plant the proportion of carbon may be roughly estimated by charring some wood or foliage that is by heating it out of contact with the air so as to decompose and drive off all the other constituents of the fabric leaving the large bulk of charcoal or carbon behind nitrogen the remaining plant element is a gas which makes up more than two-thirds of the atmosphere is brought into the foliage and also to the roots being moderately soluble in water in the same ways as is carbonic acid the nitrogen which mixed with oxygen a little carbonic acid and vapor of water constitutes the air we breathe is the source of this fourth plant element 
but it is very doubtful if ordinary plants can use any nitrogen gas directly as food that is if they can directly cause it to combine with the other elements so as to form protoplasm but when combined with hydrogen forming ammonia or when combined with oxygen nitric acid and nitrates plants appropriate it with avidity and several natural processes are going on in which nitrogen of the air is also combined and supplied to the soil in forms directly available to the plant the most efficient is nitrification the formation of nitre nitrate of potash in the soil especially in all fertile soils through the action of a bacterial ferment assimilation in plants is the conversion of these inorganic substances essentially water carbonic acid and some form of combined or combinable nitrogen into vegetable matter this most dilute food the living plant concentrates and assimilates to itself only plants are capable of converting these mineral into organizable matters and this all-important work is done by them so far as all ordinary vegetation is concerned only under the light of the sun acting upon green parts or foliage that is upon chlorophyll or upon what answers to chlorophyll which these parts contain the sun in some way supplies a power which enables the living plant to originate these peculiar chemical combinations to organize matter into forms which are alone capable of being endowed with life the proof of this proposition is simple and it shows at the same time in the simplest way what a plant does with water and carbonic acid it consumes namely first it is only in sunshine or bright daylight that the green parts of plants give out oxygen gas then they regularly do so and second the giving out of this oxygen gas is required to render the chemical composition of water and carbonic acid the same as that of cellulose that is of the plant's permanent fabric this shows why plants spread out so large a surface of foliage leaves are so many workshops full of machinery worked by sun power the emission of oxygen gas from any sunlit foliage is seen by placing some of this under water or by using an aquatic plant by collecting the air bubbles which rise and by noting that a taper burns brighter in this air or a leafy plant in a glass globe may be supplied with a certain small percentage of carbonic acid gas and after proper exposure to sunshine the air on being tested will be found to contain less carbonic acid and just so much the more oxygen gas now if the plant is making cellulose or any equivalent substance that is is making the very materials of its fabric and growth as must generally be the case all this oxygen gas given off by the leaves comes from the decomposition of carbonic acid taken in by the plant for cellulose and also starch dextrine sugar and the like are composed of carbon along with oxygen and hydrogen in just the proportions to form water and the carbonic acid and water taken in less the oxygen which the carbon brought with it as carbonic acid and which is given off from the foliage in sunshine just represents the manufactured article cellulose it comes to the same if the first product of assimilation is sugar or dextrine which is a sort of soluble starch or starch itself 
and in the plant all these forms are readily changed into one another. In the tiny seedling, as fast as this assimilated matter is formed, it is used in growth, that is, in the formation of cell walls. After a time, some or much of the product may be accumulated in store for future growth, as in the root of the turnip, or the tuber of the potato, or the seed of corn or pulse. This store is mainly in the form of starch. When growth begins anew, this starch is turned into dextrine, or into sugar, in liquid form, and used to nourish and build up the germinating embryo or the new shoot, where it is at length converted into cellulose and used to build up plant structure. But that which builds plant fabric is not the cellular structure itself. The work is done by the living protoplasm which dwells within the walls. This also has to take and to assimilate its proper food for its own maintenance and growth. Protoplasm assimilates, along with the other three elements, the nitrogen of the plant's food. This comes primarily from the vast stock in the atmosphere, but mainly through the earth where it is accumulated through various processes in a fertile soil, mainly so far as concerns crops from the decomposition of former vegetables and animals. This protoplasm, which is formed at the same time as the simpler cellulose, is essentially the same as the flesh of animals and the source of it. It is the common basis of vegetable and animal life. So, plant assimilation produces all the food and fabric of animals starch sugar the oils which are as it were these farinaceous matters more deoxidated chlorophyll and the like and even cellulose itself form the food of herbivorous animals and much of the food of man when digested they enter into the blood undergo various transformations and are at length decomposed into carbonic acid and water and exhaled from the lungs in respiration in other words are given back to the air by the animal as the very same materials which the plant took from the air as its food are given back to the air in the same form that they would have taken if the vegetable matter had been left to decay where it grew or if it had been set on fire and burned and with the same result too as to the heat the heat in this case producing and maintaining the proper temperature of the animal the protoplasm and other products containing nitrogen gluten, legumine, etc., and which are most accumulated in grains and seeds for the nourishment of their embryos when they germinate, compose the most nutritious vegetable food consumed by animals. They form their proper flesh and sinews, while the earthy constituents of the plant form the earthy matter of the bones, etc. At length decomposed, in the secretions and exertions, these nitrogenous constituents are through successive changes finally resolved into mineral matter, into carbonic acid, water, and ammonia, or some nitrates, into exactly or essentially the same materials which the plants took up and assimilated. Animals depend on vegetables absolutely and directly for their subsistence, also indirectly because plants purify the air for animals. In the very process by which they create food, they take from the air carbonic acid gas, injurious to animals' respiration, which is continually poured into it by the breathing of all animals, by all decay, by the burning of fuel, and all other ordinary combustion, and they restore an equal bulk of life-sustaining oxygen 
needful for the respiration of animals needful also in a certain measure for plants in any work they do for in plants as well as in animals work is done at a certain cost six plant work and movement as the organic basis and truly living material of plants is identical with that of animals so is the life at bottom essentially the same but in animals something is added at every rise from the lowest to the highest organisms action and work in living beings require movement living things move those not living are only moved plants move as truly as do animals the latter nourished as they are upon organized food which has been prepared for them by plants and is found only here and there must needs have the power of going after it of collecting it or at least of taking it in which requires them to make spontaneous movements but ordinary plants with their widespread surface always in contact with the earth and air on which they feed the latter everywhere the same and the former very much so might be thought to have no need of movement ordinary plants indeed have no locomotion some float but most are rooted to the spot where they grew yet probably all of them execute various movements which must be as truly self-caused as are those of the lower grades of animals movements which are overlooked only because too slow to be directly observed nevertheless the motion of the hour hand and of the minute hand of a watch is not less real than that of the second hand figure 488 two individuals of an oscillaria magnified locomotion moreover many microscopic plants living in water are seen to move freely if not briskly under the microscope and so likewise do more conspicuous aquatic plants in their embryo-like or seedling state even at maturity species of oscillaria such as in figures 488 minute worm-shaped plants of fresh waters taking this name from their oscillating motions freely execute three different kinds of movement the very delicate investing coat of cellulose not impeding the action of the living protoplasm within even when this coat is firmer and hardened with a siliceous deposit such crescent-shaped or boat-shaped one-celled plants as clostarium or nericula are able in some way to move along from place to place in the water figure 489 a few cells of a leaf of niaeus flexilis highly magnified the arrows indicate the courses of the circulating currents movements in cells or cell circulation sometimes called cyclosis has been detected in so many plants especially in comparatively transparent aquatic plants and in hairs on the surface of land plants where it is easiest to observe that it may be inferred to take place in all cells during the most active part of their life this motion is commonly a streaming movement of threads of protoplasm carrying along solid granules by which the action may be observed and the rate measured or in some cases it is a rotation of the whole protoplasmic contents of the cell a comparatively low magnifying power will show it in the cells of nitella and chara which are cryptogamous plants and under a moderate power it is well seen in the tape grass of fresh water valisneria and in niaeus flexilis minute particles and larger greenish globules are seen to be carried along as if in a current around the cell passing up one side across the end 
down the other and across the bottom, completing the circuit sometimes within a minute or less when well warmed. To see it well in the cell, which like a string of beads form the hairs on the stamens of spiderwort, a high magnifying power is needed. Transference of liquid from cell to cell, and so from place to place in the plant, the absorption of water by the rootless, and the exhalation of the greater part of it from the foliage, these and similar operations are governed by the physical laws which regulate the diffusion of fluids, but are controlled by the action of living protoplasm. Equally, under vital control, are the various chemical transformations which attend assimilation and growth, and which involve not only molecular movements, but conveyance. Growth itself, which is the formation and shaping of new parts, implies the direction of internal activities to definite ends. Movements of Organs The living protoplasm, in all but the lowest grade of plants, is enclosed and to common appearance isolated in separate cells, the walls of which can only in their earliest state be said to be alive. Still plants are able to cause the protoplasm of adjacent cells to act in concert, and by their combined action to affect movements in roots, stems, or leaves, some of them very slow and gradual, some manifest and striking. Such movements are brought about through individually minute changes in the form or tension in the protoplasm of the innumerable cells which make up the structure of the organ. Some of the slower movements are effected during growth and may be explained by inequality of growth on the two sides of the bending organ. But the more rapid changes of position, and some of the slow ones, cannot be so explained. Root Movements In its growth, a root turns or bends away from the light and towards the center of the earth, so that in lengthening it bears itself in the soil where it is to live and act. Every one must have observed this in the germination of seeds. Careful observations have shown that the tip of a growing root also makes little sweeps or short movements from side to side. By this means it more readily insinuates itself into yielding portions of the soil. The root tips will also turn towards moisture and so secure the most favorable positions in the soil. Stem Movements the root end of the collicle, or first joint of the stem, that below the cotyledons, acts like the root, in turning downward in germination, making a complete bend to do so if it happens to point upward as the seed lies on the ground, while the other end turns or points skyward. These opposite positions are taken in complete darkness as readily as in the light, in dryness as much as in moisture. Therefore, so far as these movements are physical, the two portions of the same internode appear to be oppositely affected by gravitation or other influences. Rising into the air, the stem and green shoots generally, while young and pliable, bend or direct themselves toward the light, or toward the stronger light when unequally illuminated, while roots turn towards the darkness. Many growing stems have also a movement in nutation, that is, of nodding successively in different directions. This is brought about by a temporary increase of turgidity of the cells along one side, thus bowing the stem over to the opposite side, and this line of turgescence travels round the shoot continually, from right to left, or from left to right, according to the species. Thus the shoot bends to all points of the compass in succession. 
Commonly, this nutation is slight or hardly observable. It is most marked in twining stems. The growing upper end of such stems, as is familiar in the hop, pole beans, and morning glory, turns over in an inclined or horizontal direction, thus stretching out to reach a neighboring support, and by the continual change in the direction of the knotting, sweeps the whole circle, and sweeps being the longer as the stem lengthens. When it strikes against a support, such as a stem or branch of a neighboring plant, the motion is arrested at the contact, but continues at the growing apex beyond, and this apex is thus made to wind spirally around the supporting body. Leaf movements are all but universal. The presentation by most leaves of their upper surface to the light, from whatever direction that may come, is an instance, for when they turn upside down, they twist or bend around the stalk to recover this normal position. Leaves, and the leaflets of compound leaves, change this position at nightfall, or when the light is withdrawn. They then take what is called their sleeping posture, resuming the diurnal position when daylight returns. This is very striking in locust trees, in the sensitive plant, and the wood sorrel. Young seedlings droop or close their leaves at night in plants which are not thus affected in the adult foliage. All this is thought to be a protection against the cold by nocturnal radiation. Various plants climb by a coiling movement of their leaves or their leaf stalks. Familiar examples are seen in Clematis, Morandia, Tropielum, and in Solanum, which is much cultivated in greenhouses. In the latter, and in other woody plants which climb in this way, the petioles thicken and harden after they have grasped their support, thus securing a very firm hold. Tendril Movements Tendrils are either leaves or stems, specially developed for climbing purposes. Cobea is a good example of partial transformation. Some of the leaflets are normal, some of the same leaf are little tendrils, and some intermediate in character. The passion flowers give good examples of simple stem tendrils. Grapevines of branched ones. Most tendrils make revolving sweeps, like those of twining stems. Those of some passion flowers in sultry weather are apt to move fast enough for the movement actually to be seen for a part of the circuit, as plainly as that of the second-hand watch. Two herbaceous species, Passiflora gracilis and P. sequoides, the first an annual, the second a strong-rooted perennial of the easiest cultivation, are admirable for illustration both of revolving movements and of sensitive coiling. Figure 490. Piece of stem of sensitive plant, Mimosa peduca, with two leaves, the lower open, the upper in the closed state. Movements under irritation. The most familiar case is that of the sensitive plant. The leaves suddenly take their nocturnal position when roughly touched or when shocked by a jar. The leaflets close in pairs, the four outspread in partial petioles come closer together and the common petiole is depressed. The seat of the movements is at the base of the leaf stalk and stalklets. Shronchia, a near relative of the sensitive plant, acts in the same way, but is slower. These are not anomalous actions, but only extreme manifestations of a faculty more or less common in foliage. 
in locust and honey locust for example repeated jars will slowly produce similar effects leaf stalks and tendrils are adapted to their uses in climbing by a similar sensitiveness the coiling of the leaf stalk is in response to a kind of irritation produced by contact with the supporting body this may be shown by gentle rubbing or prolonged pressure upon the upper face of the leaf stalk which is soon followed by a curvature tendrils are still more sensitive to the contact or light friction this causes the free end of the tendril to coil around the support and the sensitiveness propagated downward along the tendril causes that side of it to become less turgescent or the opposite side more so thus throwing the tendril into coils this shortening draws the plant up to the support tendrils which have not laid hold will at length commonly coil spontaneously in a simple coil from the free apex downward in sicyos echinocytis and the above-mentioned passion flowers the tendril is so sensitive under a higher summer temperature that it will curve and coil promptly after one or two light strokes by the hand figure 491 portion of stem and leaves of the telegraph plant desmodium gyrans almost of natural size among spontaneous movements the most singular are those of desmodium gyrans of india sometimes called telegraph plant which is cultivated on account of its action of its three leaflets the larger terminal one moves only by drooping at nightfall and rising with the dawn but its two small lateral leaflets when in a congenial high temperature by day and night move upward and downward in a succession of jerks stopping occasionally as if to recover from exhaustion in most plant movements some obviously useful purpose is subserved this of desmodium gyrans is a riddle movement in flowers are very various the most remarkable are in some way connected with fertilization some occur under irritation the stamens of barberry start forward when touched at the base inside those of many polyandrous flowers of sparmania very strikingly spread outwardly when lightly brushed the two lips or lobes of the stigma in mimulus close after a touch some are automatic and are connected with dichogamy the style of sabbatia and of large flowered species of epilobium bends over strongly to one side or turns downward when the blossom opens but slowly erects itself a day or two later extraordinary movements connected with capture of insects the most striking cases are those of drosera and dionea for an account of which see how plants behave and goodale's physiological botany the upper face of leaves and of common species of drosera or sundew is beset with stout bristles having a glandular tip this tip secretes a drop of a clear but very viscid liquid which glistens like a dewdrop in the sun whence the popular name when a fly or other small insect attracted by the liquid alights itself upon the leaf the viscid drops are so tenacious that they hold it fast in struggling it only becomes more completely entangled now the neighboring bristles which have not been touched slowly bend inward from all sides toward the captured insect and bring their sticky apex upon its body thus increasing the number of bonds moreover 
the blade of the leaf commonly aids in the capture by becoming concave its sides or edges turning inward which brings still more of the gland-tipped bristles into contact with the captive's body the insect perishes the clear liquid disappears apparently by absorption into the tissue of the leaf it is thought that the absorbed secretion takes with it some of the juices of the insect or the products of its decomposition figure 492 plant of dianea muscipula or venus's flytrap reduced in size dianea muscipula the most remarkable vegetable flytrap is related to the sundews and has a more special and active apparatus for fly-catching formed of the summit of the leaf the two halves of this rounded body move as if they were hinged upon the midrib their edges are fringed with spiny but not glandular bristles which interlock when the organ closes upon the face are two or three short and delicate bristles which are sensitive they do not themselves move when touched but they propagate the sensitiveness to the organ itself causing it to close with a quick movement in a fresh and vigorous leaf under a high summer temperature and when the trap lies widely open a touch of any one of the minute bristles on the face by the finger or any extraneous body springs the trap so to say and it closes suddenly but after an hour or so it opens again when a fly or other small insect alights on the trap it closes in the same manner and so quickly that the intercrossing marginal bristles obstruct the egress of the insect unless it be a small one and not worth taking afterwards and more slowly it completely closes and presses down upon the prey then some hidden glands pour out a glary liquid which dissolves out the juices of the insect's body next all is reabsorbed into the plant and the trap opens to repeat the operation but the same leaf perhaps never captures more than two or three insects it ages instead becomes more rigid and motionless or decays away that some few plants should thus take animal food will appear less surprising when it is considered that hosts of plants of the lower grade known as fungi molds rusts ferments bacteria etc live upon animal or other organized matter either decaying or living that plants should execute movements in order to accomplish the ends of their existence is less surprising now when it is known that the living substance of plants and animals is essentially the same that the beings of both kingdoms partake of a common life to which as they rise in the scale other and higher endowments are successively superadded work uses up material and energy in plants as well as in animals the latter live and work by the consumption and decomposition of that which plants have assimilated into organizable matter through an energy derived from the sun and which is so to say stored up in the assimilated products in every internal action as well as in every movement and exertion some portion of this assimilated matter is transformed and of its stored energy expended the steam engine is an organism for converting the sun's radiant energy stored up by plants in the fuel into mechanical work an animal is an engine fed by vegetable fuel in the same or other forms from the same source by the decomposition of which it also does mechanical work 
The plant is the producer of food and accumulator of solar energy or force. But the plant, like the animal, is a consumer whenever and by so much as it does any work except its great work of assimilation. Every internal change and movement, every transformation, such as that of starch into sugar and of sugar into cell walls, as well as every movement of parts which becomes extremely visible, is done at the expanse of a certain amount of its assimilated matter and of its stored energy, that is, by the decomposition or combustion of sugar or some such product into carbonic acid and water, which is given back to the air, just as in the animal it is given back to the air in respiration. So the respiration of plants is as real and as essential as that of animals. But what plants consume or decompose in their life and action is of insignificant amount in comparison with what they compose. End of section 19 Recording by Corinne LePage